Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Fawaz Jarjas, he is the London School of Economics professor of the Middle East Center. And um, Professor, you're also the author of ISIS, A History. When you look at what a travel ban could do, does it actually push more people into extreme thinking because they feel left out? Or can we not do that correlation? Any expert on the Middle East, any expert on ISIS would tell you the worst thing you can do is to basically provide ISIS and Al-Qaeda with ideological ammunition, with motivation and inspiration. The ban against seven countries and Syrian uh, and Iraqi refugees. Basically, it's ineffective. That is, it will do more damage than good. It will hardly basically uh, limit the damage, any kind of attacks against the United States. It's counterproductive because it plays into the narrative of al-Qaeda and ISIS. It's foolishly irrational. It alienates Muslim public opinion. If you want to fight ISIS, you don't lump more than one billion Muslims with Islamic radicalism and Al-Qaeda and ISIS. It deepens anti-American sentiments in the Muslim world. If you tell me, what does the ban do? I would say it provides a massive propaganda boost for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It plays into their hands. It's sweet music to extremist networks, not just in the Middle East, but in the greater uh, Muslim world. Will the White House understand this? I don't think so. What we need to understand is that I don't have to be an expert to tell Donald Trump that this is irrational, that it's counterproductive, that it's foolishly an American. I think what we need to understand, this particular decision, this particular initiative on the part of Donald Trump, is really Donald Trump is blinded by ideology. This is a political decision. It plays into well with his hardcore narrative. But, I mean, if you look at what's happening in the Middle East and the Muslim world, you have anger, you have rage. And more and more Muslims now are buying into al-Qaeda and ISIS narrative that this is a war against Islam and Muslims. Mm. I mean, this is not a war between Islam and the West. This is a war within Islam. That is the fight within Iraq and Syria. It's a war within Islam. What Donald Trump is is trying to do is to shift the narrative. This is a war between Islam and the West. Professor, I want to ask you a really sensitive question. I say this with great respect for the literature of, say, Albert Harani and the history of the Arab peoples and all the other literature on, on Islam. Is Donald Trump running what the Middle East and, and the Islamic world would perceive as a new crusade? Is there a tinge here within the rhetoric and the discourse that President Trump is galloping off to Jerusalem to fight the fourth, the fifth, or the sixth crusade? You know, uh, Tom, what I fear the most is that now you have two parallel narratives happening in, 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 in the world, in the Islamic world and the Western world. On the one hand, you have a fringe group called ISIS or Al-Qaeda. ISIS and Al-Qaeda says there is a clash of civilization between Islam and the West. 
that this is a clash of civilization between America, which is basically the leader of the free world. And now you have Donald Trump, who's basically trafficking in a similar clash. And the clash is a clash of civilization. This is not about a tiny fringe in the Muslim world. This is a war between uh, Islam and the West. I mean, think of what Donald Trump has said in the past two years. These are not my words. Islam hates us all. That is, he, he's talking about Americans, right. all of us. Uh, and this is a clash of civilization. So what I fear the most is that Donald Trump is shifting the debate from being what's happening in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. This is a war within Islam into being a struggle, a clash between Islam and the West. And that's why I say that Donald Trump is unwittingly or wittingly playing into the narrative of al-Qaeda and ISIS. Professor, what we react to within the United States and frankly in the collegial West is Mr. Trudeau stepped up this weekend in Canada and said our doors are open to refugees. I'm sure he was awakened last night with the killings in Quebec. Is ISIS in any way diminished or should Mr. Trudeau and all of us expect these isolated incidents like Quebec? I mean, I think it's not surprising, uh, Tom. Uh, I mean, these incidents have become part of our life. Whether you're talking about Istanbul, whether you're talking about the Sinai, whether you're talking about Berlin, whether you're talking about Quebec, or whether you're talking about Florida, or whether you're talking about California. Uh, there is a real division now, a real cleavage, and you have fringe elements on both sides who subscribe to this particular clash of civilization that is between Islam and the West. What, but what we're talking about here an entirely different, this is the United States of America, Tom. This is not a banana republic. When the president of the United States basically traffics in a clash of civilization narrative, call it what you are, I mean, in the Muslim world, and I know a bit about the Arab world and the Muslim world, it's seen as a Muslim ban. Uh, it alienates Muslim public opinion. When, when, when Donald Trump, the president of the United States, traffics in such a, a, a narrative, it undermines the idea of America as a moral force and also provides ammunition not just for al-Qaeda and ISIS, it provides ammunition to the far-right group in the heart of Europe, where I am, in Britain, in Germany, in France and other countries. Right. And that's why it's very dangerous. Well, let me ask a question. I'm sure Francine is far more knowledgeable about this than I am. Should President Trump speak to Parliament? Should President Trump give, be given the privilege of speaking at Westminster Hall, that, that, that space that goes back to 1000 AD? You know, Tom, uh, really, and I, I, I appear on Arab television on a daily basis, I say Donald Trump does not speak for the United States of America. Donald Trump does not speak for the 340 million Americans. There's a real struggle in the United States, and it's really wonderful to see the debate, the struggle that's shaping in the United States, and the media, in particular, the American media, standing up and defending American values. The worst thing we can do, and I hear now I'm in the heart of the UK, the worst thing we can do is to give a platform for this kind of rhetoric. I'm saddened by the fact that Theresa May has not stood up in the same way that Merkel in Germany and the French president and the Canadian president. This is not a war. This is not a clash between Islam and the West. It's a clash within. There is a real struggle. I am an American. I'm talking as an American. There is a clash within America about the values we subscribe to, the progressive, democratic, humanist values. Donald Trump right. does not speak for me, does not speak for millions of Americans. This has been wonderful. Professor Gerges, thank you so much with the London School of Economics.
Without question, our interview of the day. He is a former ambassador to NATO and Greece, Nicholas Burns. Ambassador Burns, wonderful to have you with us today. Good I want, morning. I want to know from you what you will be listening for from Secretary-designate Tillerson. If I assume that Tillerson and Secretary of Defense Mattis are the adults in the room, how do they act forward to what we've observed in the last four days? Well, I think that, that Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Desmond Tillerson, is going to be asked about um, this um, this ban on refugees over the next four months. It's a difficult move by the Trump administration because it really wasn't necessary. We already had strong vetting in place. Refugees have to wait 24 to 36 months to get into this country. We know everything about them. We've taken in 800,000 refugees since 9-11 with very few problems. So I think he'll be asked about that and about the fact that when the Trump administration when President Trump signed this executive order, they hadn't briefed the Congress. Right. And they hadn't briefed the governments involved. So the, the implementation is okay. very right. But help me here with the Oval Office and the structure of government. Folks, if you haven't seen it, the website for WhiteHouse.gov, they dropped the judicial branch this morning. We all know about Mr. Bannon, President Trump, et cetera. Nick Burns, do you presume that senior cabinet officers ride to the constitutional and common sense rescue? Or is that just wishful thinking on the part of people not as grizzled as you? Well, the president obviously is the most important person in this system. Um, the secretary of state and secretary of defense um, have a lot of power if the president wants to listen to them. Uh, I think Mr. Tillerson and General Mattis are extremely impressive people. They've got a lot of experience. They're pragmatic. And they're the kind of people you want to have around you when you make this decision because you have to think, have we taken care of Congress? Does Congress agree with this? Have we listened to the Congress? So now you have a mutiny of Republican senators against the refugee policy because they weren't consulted and because this has been, I think, in part, the wrong decision by the administration. So you do need those people around the table. And certainly on Russia, you saw that President Trump talked to President Putin over the weekend. Apparently, President Trump did not raise with President Putin. Russian interference in our election didn't even raise Ukraine. Those are the two top issues in the U.S.-Russia relationship. So you want to have someone like Rex Tillerson around to say, we've got to speak truth to power. We've got to go at Putin, raise these issues, and be tough-minded with him. So I think you've seen an absence of that kind of adult leadership, a very strong, experienced leadership in the White House over the last 10 days. Ambassador Burns, if I'm Rex Tillerson, am I going to be worried about the department that I – uh, perhaps will inherit here. There has been uh, the, the resignation or forced removal of a number of people at the top Foreign Service officers at the at the State Department. Uh, I just I just wonder what that portends for the department in terms of leadership, in terms of internal leadership going forward. Well, it's been a very slow transition. Um, the Trump President Trump has not even appointed the Deputy Secretary of State, the number two official, or the three or four major undersecretaries of state. This is the leadership team, so no one's even been appointed yet. In our system, you have to have security clearance. That takes a long time. You have to have Senate confirmation. So it may be that Rex Tillerson will not, and Jim Mattis won't have their leadership teams in place until the summer. And here we are. We're going to have, you know, we're the largest and most powerful country in the world. You need to have that team around you. So he's going to have to rely on career officials. But last week, the Trump administration essentially pushed out the top management team, all career officials, people who have served presidents of both parties, they pushed them all out. And so you have to wonder about the wisdom of, of not relying on the career service. The career service is apolitical. 
They will serve any president with loyalty, but they're getting a stiff arm right now from the Trump administration. Just lastly here, let's ask uh, you about the uh, the National Security Council. Tom mentioned Steve Bannon, who now will have a role on that council going forward, something that is unprecedented. We haven't seen that uh, in previous administrations, and the CIA, director of the CIA, will not uh, be on the council. What do you make of this, and what, what does that tell you about the direction in terms of foreign policy this administration? Well, it seems to be a mistake when you don't have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a director of national intelligence at the table permanently. I don't see how you can have effective decision-making. When you do have the senior political advisor, the political strategist, in this case Steve Bannon at the table, that's something that President Bush especially felt would be wrong. You have to separate politics from national security. You don't want the implication, uh, however, it's, whether it's fair or not, that the president is acting uh, for political, domestic political motives on the critical issues of foreign policy. So this is a, this has taken, I think, lots of people who've been in Washington for years by surprise. I know President Trump wants to change everything, but not everything's broken. Mm. Our refugee system, for instance, is not broken. We've taken in 800,000 mm. people since 9-11. You have been cordial. Thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Burns, for joining us today. I'm sure we'll call on you here uh, in uh, the coming days as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David, a fabulous book, Failure to Adjust. Yes, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. It's by Edward Alden. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, joins us now an expert on trade policy and U.S.-Mexico relations and immigration policy as well. Uh, Edward Alden joining us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Spectrum Enterprise, nationwide fiber-based network and IT infrastructure uh, solutions. And, Ted, I'd love to talk about U.S.-Mexico relations and the wall and all of that. In just a moment, but let me get your reaction to what we saw play out over the weekend here. Uh, you have studied immigration policy so closely. Uh, we've had conversations about what it might look like were it to come out of Congress. Is this uh, immigration policy of a different sort? Does this portend uh, a new tact when it comes to crafting immigration policy in this country? Um, yes, indeed, uh, David. I mean, this is the most extraordinary thing I've certainly ever seen in, in my lifetime. Uh, we're changing 50, 60 years of immigration policy here in a week. Um, my first book was actually about the impact of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on, on U.S. immigration policy. That was pretty substantial, but it was rolled out carefully and thoughtfully. There were some pretty severe unintended consequences, but, but it was a, a fairly rational process. This just just happened. I mean, as the Wall Street Journal put it this morning, it was like dropping a stun grenade. And and you know, we saw some extraordinary scenes over the weekend at the airports across the United States. So I think the disruption was uh, far beyond anything we've ever seen before. And and it's going to be fascinating to watch how the administration tries to pick up the pieces this week. Fascinating to watch. Does it play out in the court system? Does it play out on Capitol Hill? How do you see the the opposition to this taking shape? Yeah, I mean, it plays out everywhere. You had, uh, you know, immediately a couple of court injunctions, which appear to have made it possible, at least for, for, for those citizens from these seven countries that were on the ban list, who, um, you know, already had travel authorization to the United States, had actually in a lot of cases arrived and were being detained at the airports. Uh, the, the injunctions appear to make it possible for those people to enter, though, though compliance by Department of Homeland Security officials across the country seemed to be spotty. And then, obviously, the second question is, is what happens from the Congress? You have, 
you know, Senator McCain, Senator Graham, and others speaking out. But I think it's getting broader. Um, you know, Senator Corker, the the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and others are are strongly suggesting that the administration needs to rethink its direction here. Let me ask you just about um, about what we saw last week. It's funny the the the, the news flow is so strong. The the the, the subject we were talking about last week was was Mexico, U.S. Mexico relations. I was looking at a piece you wrote in which you said, uh, unlike in the aftermath of nine eleven, Trump is responding to a crisis crisis mostly of his own. Uh, imagining, I suppose you could extrapolate that to what we're seeing here with with the the, the executive order that was announced last week. Uh, but when it comes to immigration, when it comes to uh, folks getting over the border illegally, I gather we're at we're at an all time low. Uh, we're basically at levels we were back in the late '60s, early 1970s. I mean, Mexico. There was really almost no Mexican illegal immigration through the mid 1960s when. Uh, when we actually, the United States, for the first time, imposed visa restrictions on, on Mexico. And then you started to see this kind of slow climb in numbers, but it really didn't hit the crisis point basically until the early 1980s. So we're now back at, at, at the level when nobody in the United States was worried at all about illegal yeah. migration from Mexico. I'm not saying that's not a problem, but the numbers are a fraction of what they were a decade ago. We have talked in the recent days of Brad DeLong's essays mm-hmm. on trade, Danny Roderick uh, at Harvard, and they with collegial disagreement. Folks, failure to adjust is the primer. Chapter 5, Edward Alden, you kill it with a Fred Bergston quote from 44 years ago where Fred Bergston and others said there's two paths. Do it this way or actually provide assistance to the Americans that were dislocated through NAFTA, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see any visibility that we're actually going to compensate workers who've been wiped out. If we don't do that, what are we going to do? Yeah, um, thank you, Tom. I mean, that was, in my mind, an extraordinary historical mistake. Look, trade is a good thing. I am, I am strongly pro-free trade. Technology is a good thing. It's how we get more productive. But all of these things create disruption. They put people out of work. They, they change the nature of communities. They drive factories away sometimes. And, and you have, we, we needed to be serious as a country about trying to help those people adjust find new work for them, retrain them, try to build their communities back up. If we couldn't, try to help them move to other places. And Fred realized this, you know, as a young man way back in the 1970s. And a lot of others recognized it, too, as I read about in my book. And it just was not done. And we're now at a point, unfortunately, where we're scrambling because we've got a president who no longer believes in open trade. He believes in protectionism. Why, Why wasn't it done? And do you see any indication that these people that voted for President Trump are going to be rewarded by President Trump? Why can't we affect what everyone agrees needs to be done? I just, you know, it's been hard in the, the sort of U.S. political system. It required, you know, perhaps a slightly higher level of taxation and redistribution. And I think, you know, if we had sort of enlightened yeah. leadership in the corporate sector and elsewhere, they would have made a strong case for this and said, look, we don't want to right. kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Trade is good for the United States, but we really are going to have to be serious about helping yeah. losers. And, and I think nobody ever paid a political price for not doing it. And then all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, the entire right. country is going to pay an enormous political it, price for it, not doing it. David Gurr, I would fold this into Olivier Blanchard and Professor Summers on hysteresis and bring it right over to the great market economist John Sylvia of Wells Fargo. Compensate people who have to move because their little town in the Carolinas has been wiped out. I mean, it's easy. you do a tax, you know, a 1040 thing, 
and you say your your job is wiped out. I'm moving, and then you really compensate them. No, I was going to say that Donald Trump made a lot of promises on the campaign trail. People in the towns, like the ones that that Tom is mentioning there, and 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 I I I wonder what the odds are are Ted that that he makes good on those. I mean, you have a lot of people who voted for him and are counting on him to do something for their economic uh, situation, and and uh, you know we we've seen these executive orders which have uh, varying sharpness of of teeth. Uh, is there much that he can do in the executive office to help them? Well, I mean, most of the things that need to be done are going to require congressional action. And, and, and it's not clear to me at all that congressional Republicans are going to be sympathetic. I think, you know, big infrastructure program, I think, would help put people back to work. You certainly don't hear Republicans talking about anything that looks like redistribution to, to help those people. I think, you know, depending on what the Obamacare replacement is, they could end up being worse off in terms of their health insurance. I mean, Trump is obviously trying to act on some of the foreign-facing pieces. And, I, you know, I was actually reasonably supportive of the president with some of his jawboning of American companies. I think American companies have too often turned their back on communities here in the United States, and they need to think more about job creation here. So I was reasonably encouraged by that. But, but you know, he is now layered on top of that. Uh, you know, a number, I just think, mistaken moves, I think, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership yeah. and I think some of the threats against Mexico, I think, are all very counterproductive. You know, I'm going to recommend your book, even though in the first damn sentence of your book, Edward Alden, you have Greek. Okay, Uh-oh. folks, Uh-oh. I'm not kidding. Alpha, Vega, Tau, Alpha, Rho, Kappa, Epsilon, Iota, Alpha. What are you talking about in the first sentence of your book? Well, you know, I started it off, and and I was trying to be provocative by saying that I was born into the greatest autarky in the history of mankind. Most people don't remember that, you know, back in the early 1960s when when I was growing up in Schenectady, New York, uh, the United States didn't trade a whole lot with the rest of the world, not because we were a closed economy or because we had high tariffs, but because we didn't need anything from anybody else. We made everything better than every other country in the world. Our trade-to-GDP ratio, which is the measure of openness, was down there with uh, with the communist Soviet Union and communist China, which were countries that were pursuing autarky as a policy. So I started with that to make the point that the, the transformation we've seen in our lifetime is really dramatic. The United States has moved from a rather closed economy to a very open one, and that was just inevitably going to be disruptive. And unfortunately, we didn't put the pieces in place to try to manage the disruption that globalization was creating. I'm glad that you've had this PR campaign to make your book more attractive. (laughs) Edward Alden, with the best PR campaign. The book was important on the day it was released with the Council on Foreign Relations. Failure to adjust how Americans got left behind in the global economy. I would suggest with the offense that it is a 258-page primer to give you a grounding in perspective. Edward Alden, failure to adjust. Just superb. It'd be my book of the summer, but it's well, it's not even February it's yet, not so February. I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and now for a three-hour interview, we wish, with a gentleman from Waterville, Maine, We can all talk about our experiences and what we've witnessed the last four days. He lived it. George Mitchell grew up in a family of first-generation Lebanese. Did your mother speak English, Senator? 
uh, with a heavy accent. Heavy. Uh, she learned it finally. Yes, she did. She couldn't read or write, but she was able finally to speak it. You grew up with a kitchen table and the National Geographic on it. Does Mr. Trump understand the map of the world, if you will, and how the United States must adapt to it? Well, I can't look into his mind. Uh, I do think that uh, the action taken over the past weekend uh, will create problems for the United States around the world and probably not accomplish the uh, stated objective. Help us with the, the silence of senators. As I watched all of this uh, unfold over the weekend, you saw some Democratic senators at the airport. I remember seeing Senator Elizabeth Warren at Logan with a bullhorn. Uh, among the protests there. Were you surprised that we didn't hear more from senators as all of this unfolded from both sides of the aisle? Well, Senators McCain and Graham, of course, uh, made their views known publicly. And uh, my guess is that uh, other Republican senators are conveying concerns to the White House privately, not wanting to make the new president's life more difficult publicly because their future and their interests uh, are bound up with his but also wanting to make clear that uh, the president understands that there is widespread opposition to this, and it's not just along political lines. How weird were you listening to President Trump deliver his inaugural address, hearing the uh, disdain or displeasure he had for uh, politicians uh, in Washington, uh, thinking about what the relationship between the White House uh, and the Congress is going to be like in this term? Uh, I don't think that had any significant effect on the members of Congress of his party for the reasons I've just stated. Mm. Their, their future lies with him, and uh, they see his victory as a way to accomplish their objectives as well. People have a, all of us have a substantial capacity for rationalization and exempting themselves from whatever criticism is made, even though they may fall into that category. So I don't think too many of them were disturbed about that. Mm. Senator George Mitchell with us, with his public service to the nation, particularly in the Middle East and in Northern Ireland. Senator Doris Kearns Goodwin, team of rival. I've been saying all weekend, uh, out on Twitter and all that, uh, that General Mattis and Secretary-designate Tillerson are absolutely uh, clear. Chapter one of Kearns Goodwin, four men waiting. What are the two men waiting going to do in the cabinet as they deal with this unique White House cal calculus? How did Mattis and Tillerson advocate a normal government process? Uh, well, the beginning of it was their confirmation hearings at which they publicly expressed uh, views contrary to those yes. of the president. And hopefully they'll carry that into their private consultations. Of course, it's a fine line. They, they have to demonstrate loyalty. They will want not to be seen as overtly or politically critical of the president, but uh, hopefully they are strong enough men to make the views known in private, either individually with the president or in private meetings that are held in the Situation Room or otherwise. Uh, I don't know either man, but uh, the reputation certainly is substantial in that regard, in particular General Mattis. How do you gauge the, the strength of the, the, the uh, quality of Congress right now? Plenty of people are, are willing to, to pillory it, and I suppose you could look at what's happened here, uh, look at this immigration order and say, perhaps this is a reaction to Congress failing to do anything itself on the matter of, of, of immigration. Well, if if no it is in bad shape, what, what's going to turn it around? Well, there's no doubt that your statement about Congress's inaction is absolutely true. 
and hopefully there will be, uh, triggered by uh, these unfortunate events of the past few days, a national debate on what we should do about immigration. Uh, there's a long history there. Uh, I think the two most important changes that could be made uh, to improve Congress and reduce dysfunction uh, are to provide for redistricting of House seats uh, through a less partisan mm -hmm. mechanism mm -hmm. than now exists. Uh, Sixteen states are moving in that direction, led by California and Iowa. And if, if you get close to 50 states by 2020 or 2022, right. you might have a change. And the second factor is money. Uh, our political system is drowning in money. And right. paradoxically, as the yeah. amount of money going in is rising, the transparency of who's giving yeah. what to whom is declining. Now the Red Sox are drowning in on money as well, <laughs> and look what happened. <laughs> Senator Mitchell, one last question. I've got just 20 seconds. What would Olivia, Olympia Snow do? Where is the moderate Republican voice to temper what we see in this era? Uh, they've shrunk in numbers, uh, but I'll say. <laughs> uh, uh, Senator Collins of Maine yes. uh, remains that. I, I hope she will at some point address the subject we've had. She's been quite strong in other areas, and, and I think there are a few others, but that goes back to the prior question, the increasing polarization and partisanship mm. that you could help the cure by changing the the money system and the redistricting right. process. Senator George Mitchell, thank you so much. David Gurr and Tom Keene Worldwide. This is Bloomberg. We are honored, and I mean honored, folks, to end the madness of Bloomberg surveillance this morning with sanity. This this afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Mountain Time, Utah time, the girls' freshman basketball team of Box Elder High School will play Carnes High School. That's normalcy. And our, our guest, Congressman Bishop of the 1st District, and Chairman Bishop, I should say, of the 1st District, Utah, knows this because he taught civics years ago, social studies, at Box Elder High School. Uh, Chairman, wonderful to speak to you. Help apply our civics to what we've seen the last nine days. Do you counsel patience or is your congressional patience wearing thin? Uh, my personal patience is always wearing thin. <laughs> Spoken and, like a teacher, I think. Yeah. Well, at least when I was in the classroom, I could control my environment. <laughs> and I appreciate you mentioning that because, uh, you, know, you know, what can I say? Go box elder, the bees will win. I'm, I'm proud of those those girls. Um, listen, I I think what you are talking about in the broader spectrum is uh, what Speaker Ryan has talked about is his Article One initiative, which means that there needs to be decision making powers. Decisions need to be removed from the bureaucrats in the executive branch and put back into Congress, because the legislative branch is how people get their views heard and felt. If if a, if a citizen does not like a decision of one of the executive agencies, there's almost nothing that person can do about it. But the founders came up with the Constitution where I have to run for election every two mm. years. Really? Which means I am forced to listen, whether I want to or not. I am forced to listen to people. Politics, that's the nasty thing of politics, is the way common people get their views heard and felt. And that's why Congress was, was given the authority and responsibility of coming up with policy decisions in all these areas. 
And that's why it has to be moved back there. It's not just a power struggle between the executive and legislative branches. This is how people can be heard and can be empowered. And I want to see that happen. I want to help push that, that agenda. So more decisions are being made by statute, fewer by executive fiat. Yeah, you say decisions, fewer decisions have to be made by bureaucrats uh, in the executive branch. I think of the decisions we've seen from a bureaucrat, the bureaucrat, the chief bureaucrat uh, in the executive branch. That is President Trump. What's your reaction to his use of executive orders thus far, in particular the one about uh, immigration, now that we've seen the blowback, now that we've seen that there might not have been the sort of uh, legal due diligence done beforehand? Well, if executive orders are rolling back other executive orders, I think that's appropriate and that's positive going forward. If, once again, policy is being made by executive order, I would hope the administration would be working closer with Congress to make sure that Congress is the one that's establishing that that procedure going forward. So I, I need to look at each of those ones individually, how they deal with it. But I think that goes back to the philosophy I was saying in what Speaker Ryan is talking about with his Article One initiative. If we come to the mindset that all of a sudden every executive, every president has to establish all sorts yeah. of executive orders in which policy can be decided, all of a sudden you have shifted that authority and you have lessened the voice of people. But more importantly, right. you've made every, every presidential election a life and death decision. The founders had spread out the power so that that would not be the right. case, that there would not be this wide change right. in policy one way to the other. And that's why we have two-year terms. Presidents get four. Senators specifically get six because they were right. supposed to deal with foreign policy and they could they could now, extend beyond any given president. Chairman, You've help got to me. get back to okay. that. Chairman, help me here. You took 148 percent of the Republican vote last time. I get that. There's four Democrats in your district. They're out. They're bears <laughs> out in Ashley National Forest, way east of Salt Lake City. Seriously here, you are the Republican voice of a purely Republican American. What do you want from General Mattis? What do you want from Secretary Tillerson to get to a policy and process that you and your leader, Speaker Ryan, can work with? Well, I think there is one, once again, each agency has a different approach to it. And I think Mattis has already shown how he is willing to work with Congress ahead of time to try and, and meet problems. And I think Tillerson will be the same way. I, I'm impressed by both of them. But one thing I think structurally would be very helpful is if the agencies and the administrative branches would actually go to Congress first before they implement rules and regulations. I mean, it's very nice that we're doing some CRAs and trying to roll back some executive orders. But if indeed, as happens in most states, where the executive agencies have to meet with their legislative branch first before the, the rules and regulations are initiated, there'd be a whole lot better co uh, comedy, there'd be a whole lot co better continuity of programs and uh, I think we'd just have a better system of government if the rules came to us first. And I think ultimately, that's what I'd like to see happen. Chairman, if I could wave my magic wand, that's the change more I'd comedy, like to see. A call his, for more comedy his there. His box elder bees wand. It's like Harry Potter. I that's mean, box name. elders. That's right. Sort of like the chairman. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, Don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again. Maybe actually to talk uh, energy resources policy as he is the chairman of that committee. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.